Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So Lauren and I were chatting with one of our friends last week who's pregnant and is expecting a baby boy, I think this fall. Uh, So that got me thinking a little bit about baby names. uh, And I was curious to know what the top two baby names were for 2020. Lauren, any guesses? I'm sure it's something super weird, like X9421 and, you know, like... I mean, not everyone can be Elon Musk. <laughs> I have literally no idea, Virginia. Okay, so the girl's name it wasn't wasn't that crazy. Uh, Olivia. Like, well, that's a nice yeah, name. Yeah, it's that's pretty. Nice kind of classy. Um, the boy's name, also a name that I really like, Liam. Oh, I don't uh, like... Oh, really? sorry to all of my Liams out there. That's... Just go by William. <laughs> Just go by William. So my thought, though, I'm like, how influenced is that by a generation that grew up watching the Hunger Games? Because now everyone they grew up with Hunger Games, they're all having kids. And like Liam Hemsworth, like, oh, uh, <laughs> So are there like legal names? Liam? It's not even William that they just... No, it's Liam. Yeah, it's not William. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You learn something every day, Virginia. You sure do. <laughs> well, we have a lot that we're going to learn today. Ah, like oh, that connection. Oh. <laughs> All right. So, Lauren, what do we have queued up? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with the co-founder of The Changed Movement, a Christian LGBT ministry. Elizabeth Guanning started the organization with Ken Williams to come alongside people who are struggling with same-sex attraction or who want to leave a homosexual lifestyle. She shares her own personal story and how the church can love the homosexual community. Also on today's show, we talk about tennis star Naomi Osaka's decision to drop out of the 2021 French Open. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am so pleased to be joined by Elizabeth Wanning. She is the co-founder of The Change Movement, which is a Christian organization based in California that works with people who are seeking to leave the homosexual lifestyle or who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. You joined the Daily Signal podcast probably about uh, two years ago, Mm -hmm. I think it was. Uh, And you have a a personal story uh, that you shared at that time. I want to ask you just to share briefly a a little bit of your own story of walking through homosexuality, what that looked like for you and what that journey out was. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was about 16, I began questioning my sexuality after a very intense and intimate relationship that began forming with another woman. And she and I, uh, we became such incredible close friends. She actually, my relationship with her set the standard for every other relationship that I would have. And out of that, I began questioning my sexuality for years. Both of us did. Um, I ended up coming out as a lesbian in my early 20s and then um moved into a metropolitan area, into a gay neighborhood. I had been raised uh, Presbyterian, PCUSA, and so uh, I was following my faith to the best of my ability, which, you know, in the 90s as a lesbian woman, 
uh, as a Christian. That that was a challenge. Um, in my own local body, I was um, a rising elder, so I was a board, an, on the board of elders in my church, and I was grappling with my faith and decided that I would go to seminary. So I um, asked for my pastor's recommendation, a requirement to go to seminary. So I, I went to seminary openly gay, and pretty much his first words to me were, well, you'll have to come out to the Board of Elders and resign. Mm. So I resigned on the basis of immorality from my church. Um, I was not sexually active at the time. I was seeking a celibate life. Um, but by virtue of my new identity or my newly discovered identity, I, I was no longer qualified. So I went. I resigned and then went to seminary. Um, I graduated from seminary with a master's in theology at a time in the church when uh, nobody was ordaining gays and lesbians, and the PCUSA was really just, um, I was moving forward with the More Light movement at the time and, and really trying to encourage the church to open its doors to LGBTQ identifying people and struggling with that place of, I know I'm called to ministry, I love the Lord, but yet I'm suddenly disqualified and, mm. and found myself among several other seminarians who had had similar experiences and even um, had been uh, thrown out of their churches. It wasn't just that they were asked to resign, but they weren't even uh, allowed in fellowship. Wow. So I was addressing that issue among my fellow peers. Uh, when I moved from I, – I was going to school in a major metropolitan area. I moved from that area, which had a huge gay neighborhood – um, down to a rural ne- neighborhood just on the fringe of the Bible Belt. And so there I was. I mean, I, I want people to picture this. I was um, about 30, 35, and um, very uh, stereotypically butch. So I, I mostly shaved my head. I had piercings and some tattoos, which in the in early 2000s was not common. Yeah. So here I am in this rural community pretty much the token lesbian with my pride stickers on the back of my truck and everything else and and in a very, very small community, 5,000 people. And a local pastor, a young man, saw me and said, oh, she needs to know the Lord. Hmm. And so he approached me and began trying to witness to me and at one point asked, well, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm a pastor and I'm going to the office at my church. And just the look on his face was like, this does not compute. It was very funny. Um, But that moment caused us to strike up a relationship. And uh, he invited me to his uh, outreach. He was a youth pastor. And so I went one night to his gathering and he was charismatic. And I often tell people it was a Presbyterian's worst nightmare. <laughs> you know, <laughs> here I am, a, a dignified hymn singing Presbyterian in the midst of this contemporary worship, and kids were being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was on the move that night. Kids were on the floor, and there was weeping and running and speaking in tongues, all things I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. But what happened was a 17 year old boy approached me and said, I believe I have a word from the Lord for you. Mm. Now, can you imagine being a 17-year-old boy looking at me? He'd probably never spoken to a lesbian before, maybe never even seen one, and was brave enough to come up and say, I think the Lord is speaking to you. Wow. I'd never heard of anything like that. And so I remember thinking in that moment, I don't know what this is, but I need to hear. 
And so he proceeded to tell me something that I had been praying about for years. And that caused me to question whether I believed God knew me specifically. So here I had gone all, all this way, made, it seemed to me, great sacrifices for my faith. And I found myself in the position where I was actually questioning what I knew of God. Hmm. And that caused me to think, I need to know. So I did the the thing that I most relied on. I picked up a new Bible, and I began highlighting in the Bible every place where God describes himself. And it was really that journey over about 18 months of rereading the Bible, looking at the character of God, and then interacting with people who claimed that they experienced the love of God, that they could directly interact with that. It was this experiential Christianity that I had never been a part of before. I'd been a part of a strongly intellectualized academic Christianity, um, strongly weighted on the social justice end, but never, um, never been exposed to this personal witness. And that set me on the journey that caused me to begin looking at Scripture and realizing okay, I identify as a lesbian, and I'm a woman, clearly in Scripture, that isn't represented. Mm-hmm. We can go a lot of places in gay theology looking at men, but there aren't too many places you can go with gay theology looking at women. And I began questioning what lesbianism was to me, and I recognized that it gave meaning and purpose to my life. It gave personal power and authority to my life. It really gave me my voice. Mm-hmm. And that caused a bit of an existential crisis for me in the context of my faith. Yeah. Um, and so before the Lord, I began analyzing what that meant and why it was so challenging for me, such a letdown to be just a woman. Wow. And analyzing that and prayerfully walking through that with the Lord, learning the Lord's language for my life, revisiting scripture, understanding the character of God and where I fit in that. And I the Lord was able to displace my sense of belonging as a lesbian with my sense of belonging as a daughter of God. Wow. And it was that um, that kind of threshold, that crossover moment that really pulled me out of the gay community. Um, that wasn't a quick journey. Uh, once I started moving in that direction, um, I began questioning what I had believed Everything that I had believed. At first, I was in a panic because I thought, I have been teaching and preaching and promoting heresy. That was my first thought. Mm -hmm. And so in that panic of fearful, really, before the Lord, I did, you know, I I did some hard separation from the gay community and from my community where I had been before, Um, burned a lot of bridges in that as I was leaving, leaving that. But... Um, in the process, began to see there was much more to my life, so much more to this story. And over the next 15 years then, was able in the context of my faith to analyze my childhood, to understand how lesbianism really entered into my life. What was the sexual attraction? What were the roots of that? Um, What I had come to believe, why I needed it. And then I'm married. I'm married to my husband. We've been married for 16, going on 17 years That's this wonderful. year. Um, and today I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor at a large church in Northern California and co-lead the Changed Movement as well as Equipped to Love, which um, focuses on this dialogue that mm-hmm. we're having. You know, what is the LGBTQ experience in the context of our faith? 
and what what is possible for someone who experiences that in the context of their faith, as well as making a safe space for people who experience same-sex attraction or gender confusion to follow their faith, because increasingly that space is getting narrower and narrower. Like one of the questions I find myself asking is, do you believe that LGBTQ identifying people should be allowed to follow their faith wholeheartedly, even if the implication is that they leave that identity behind? And more and more people are saying no. Mm, Wow. So talk a little bit, uh, just a little bit more about what you all do uh, through the change movement and how you really journey with people. Because increasingly, I think we're seeing more and more people say, yeah, you know, this is something I struggle with or, um, you know, be drawn into the LGBTQ lifestyle. You can't escape it in society now. It's very uh, it's very prevalent. So how do you all kind of enter that space and really journey with people in a loving way? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Changed. So Ken Williams and I, the other founder, uh, we were minding our own business, being pastors in a church, (laughs) um, leading Equipped to Love when California raised some legislation that uh, would have been a consumer fraud bill that essentially said, we know sexual orientation can't change. So any suggestion that it can be, any service or any resource that is sold in the state is fraud and should be banned. And so that would have meant, so Ken just published his first book, that would have meant he could not sell it. A person could not buy it in the state of California. So we saw this as a really dramatic limitation on free speech Mm -hmm. and religious liberty. And so we began getting involved at the Capitol just sharing our stories and um, testifying in committee hearings and other things. And out of that, we recognized that nobody believed us. Really? Yeah, yeah, we knew hundreds of people at the time. We had lots of friends. And so we thought, well, what can we do? And Ken said, I think we need a book. So we drove home to uh, our home church and presented that idea to some of our leadership. And we quickly threw together a book that we ended up calling Changed um, and an intentionally provocative name. Mm-hmm. And it is it was comprised of about 30 stories of men and women who had left LGBTQ. And they were very brief. There was no rhetoric, just their stories. And we, we took that book along with everyone who had been in it um, to the Capitol and passed it out to every senator ahead of the senatorial judiciary committee hearing and spoke to people in their offices. And then on the day of the hearing, we staged a rally where we all shared our stories. It was, you know, five minutes of testimony each person, and it ended up being roughly two and a half hours of wow. live testimony from the Sacramento Capitol that was live streamed. And that live stream ended up touching hundreds of people. Like today, Ken and I know thousands of people who have been exposed to that live stream or some other moment that we've spoken of and um, come our way. We began collecting testimonies and recognizing that people needed to know we existed. And out of that, we have found ourselves using a political platform and addressing public policy to do a couple of things. One, to just let the world know that God enters into the life of an LGBTQ person and and sometimes the impossible does happen mm-hmm. and the Lord is an incredible bringer of wholeness. Mm-hmm. And we, so we are able to kind of pronounce the gospel in unusual places by doing that, but then also recognizing that 
a lot of the legislation that's happening right now is closing the door for the gospel um, as we've experienced it to be expressed to the gay community. And so Changed mainly has as its focus this uh, cultivation of a grassroots network, um, really a worldwide grassroots network, but mostly here in the U.S., um, that just encourages our membership to share their stories, whether it's in church or in a public arena, so that people hear what God can do in a person's life and also how important it is that there be protections for free speech and religious liberty for the gay community to have the choice to move forward on their faith. I love your approach. It's so powerful because you can't argue with someone's personal story, what they've experienced, what they've walked through, what Mm -hmm. they've journeyed. That's incredible. Now, I know this week you and Ken uh, have been here in D.C. You've been talking with policymakers. You've been gathering individuals together to talk about this issue. Um, so share just a little bit about you know the issues that you're kind of focused on, the policies that you all are focused on right now, and where we are as a country at this moment kind of wrestling through you know, so much promotion of, of LGBTQ agenda. Well, you know, the LGBTQ quote-unquote agenda is so complex. Yeah. Um, What I see is this somewhat superficial conversation or oversimplified conversation of even what it means to be LGBTQ. And so one significant problem that we have is that identity politics are being codified into legislation, which is such a constraint on the human experience. Like, honestly, um, the LGBTQ experience is to a measure, um, and this could be offensive to many, to a measure it's dehumanizing because it essentially says you you don't really belong among the rest. You have to have a special label in order to belong among the rest of the male and female population. And that sense of belonging is such a sore spot for people who experience LGBTQ. And so there's this conundrum of when you apply the label to yourself, you find belonging among that niche or that small group of people, but you don't find belonging among the larger group, and you really want belonging among the larger group. So now you're constrained in the smaller group, and what legislation is trying to do is force you into, force the larger group to accommodate you in a way that you still have legal protections that exclude you from um, simple identification as uh, a person among persons. Mm. And so it's a strange, uh, it's a very strange semantic conundrum that, that we're watching unfold. And the problem of rejection and abandonment in the gay community is a lasting and often lifelong problem and so I'm not entirely convinced that legislation is going to assuage that. Yeah. You know, there needs to be a larger conversation for, uh, for America on what it means to be human, um, what is human dignity, and how do we accommodate our differences and truly love one another in a way that is relational, communal, cultural, um, I'm, I'm fearful that the legislation that we're creating will be even more divisive as opposed to unifying. Mm. Yet I think the heart behind much of the legislation is to force unity. We'll see whether that plays out. Yeah. So, you know, there are a number of problems. I think 
Um, one of them that is particularly painful for us is the conversation on counseling choice. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, it, it, it's very strongly stigmatized. Is that also uh, conversion therapy, essentially? Because mm-hmm. I know yeah. that term is sl- thrown yeah. around a lot. Okay. So-called conversion therapy, which is so poorly, it's so ill-defined. Yeah. Um, we have a friend from Canada, Jojo Ruba, who has analyzed legislation across the world, and he's found over 150 different uh, definitions of conversion therapy. And so it, there's this presumption of what it is, but no clear legal uh, uh, definition. And um, many of us in Changed have um, availed ourselves and benefited, availed ourselves of and benefited from programs that focused on some of the unique uh, the unique problems that are common to people with the LGBTQ experience, whether it's rejection or even sexual abuse. Although, not of course, not every person has sexual yeah. abuse issues or trauma issues um, or attachment issues. Everyone is so unique. Nevertheless, there are so many of us who do. And and so, um, what what do you say to a person, uh, a woman, for example? who was molested as a child and raped as a teenager and now can no longer find herself safe with another man and so turns to a woman for the security of that relationship and comfort of that relationship and so now is encouraged to identify as a lesbian and to believe that she was born that way, to believe that there could be no particular route to her experience of same-sex attraction and so never get the opportunity to address the trauma with the possibility of resolution. Mm. That is not going to be that, um, that doesn't that's help not her. that's not encouraged. So, it, you yeah. know, you can maybe talk about the trauma. But, you know, when you resolve a trauma like that, if your natural disposition would be towards opposite sex, um, saying that that's impossible or that now that's incongruent with your identity traps you then in that trauma for a life. And wow. I've talked to so many women for whom that is their living experience. Mm-hmm. Um, as a gay person, it's anathema to suggest that uh, trauma or childhood experience informs your sexuality. Um, nevertheless, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or another scenario would be a child experiencing gender dysphoria. So we know statistically, and the APA agrees, that children below the age of puberty, if if they're allowed to, um, if they're not encouraged to transition, like if they're allowed to naturally grow and encouraged to align with their biological sex, so watchful waiting, um, they will desist from um, opposite sex identification, gender confusion. And um, so... But often what has happened in a moment like that is that child has experienced some kind of trauma. There's a perception that being the sex that I am is wrong. So, for example, our friend Kathy Grace Duncan um, experienced some sexual abuse and then watched her father uh, beat her mother. Mm. And she made a childhood judgment that it would be better, like I could be a better husband to my mother than my father could be. Mm. So I'm going to become the man that my father isn't. Mm. And and she that played out for her. That p- childhood perception took root um, and began bearing fruit and she eventually transitioned and lived as a man for 11 years. Now, if 
someone along the way could have identified that she was traumatized as a child, how much pain and confusion and even self-mutilation could have been avoided? And yet, um, with a conversion therapy ban, that would be forbidden. A conversion therapy ban would insist that the transgender identity be affirmed. And so we're, we're setting ourselves up for ongoing harm while we're almost delusional about some of the nuance of the LGBTQ experience. Yeah, yeah. And I know we were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording just about uh, women and kind of the impact and um, the uh, the perception that women have kind of within this movement and the resources that are afforded to women uh, specifically who are struggling with homosexuality. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, because I think um, the culturally the presentation of what it means to be LGBTQ mostly is weighted on the gay side, you know, as a gay man. So mostly the experience of a gay man is the presumption for a lesbian woman. So we presume that she uh, has had the same kinds of experiences where at puberty then she was um, strongly sexually attracted to the same sex. When most commonly a woman's sexuality begins our sexual expression begins with an emotional attachment rather than a simple, I don't want to oversimplify this, um, but rather than just the immediate sexual arousal. Mm -hmm. And so there's this complexity of a woman's sexuality that is never discussed and the fluidity that is natural to a woman and and well-known scientifically. So women typically, um, if you read Lisa Diamond's work, their sexual orientation follows their strongest love interest. And and so, you know, a woman's sexuality is not being clearly explained or described in culture. Instead, women are being told, you're born this way, and um, if you have any nuance in your sexuality, well, then you must just, you're either lesbian or you're bi. Um, and once you're one of those, there's no turning back, yeah. right? Um, and then even the scientific studies that are being uh, used to undergird um, some of the legislation that is bringing SOGI language, language, sexual orientation, gender identity language, so replacing the word sex with language that is more inclusive, quote-unquote inclusive, um, denies a woman's biological reality, first of all, um, and the necessity of protections for that. But then all of the many of the studies that are being used, um, I want to say particularly on the conversion therapy ban side, don't incorporate women's experience. Women are very uh, we have not been studied. Um, and so, for example, the Williams Institute study that's being used most often to suggest that suicide is the typical outcome for conversion therapy doesn't have a single woman included in the study. Mm. So um Women are still poorly poorly understood in our culture, in yeah. my opinion. And the woman's experience is um, no one is acknowledging that particularly the transgender movement and much of culture's embrace of LGBT is also ha- – it also has this vein of misogyny uh, peppered throughout. Mm. Share with us a little bit about uh, the resources that you all offer and for anyone listening who's either thinking – 
okay, well, this is something I struggle with. I want help. I want resources. Or maybe I have a son or a daughter or a niece or a nephew. Uh, how can they How can they tap into what you all offer? Well, Changed, as I said, is a network of a bunch of people. And, you know, many of us, particularly if you have uh, left, dropped that identity and, and moved on into, uh, like me, marrying an opposite-sex spouse, um, that expert, that that knowledge, that wisdom, um, that uh, compassion and understanding is a resource. Mm-hmm. And so many of us disciple other people. And so changed, you know, is kind of, as I said, a network of all these different people, many of which are pastors, many of which lead their own ministries. And so we do our best to plug people into those ministries via our website and represent the various, the membership of our website and direct people regionally to those. Um, the Changed Movement website itself has a, a listing of many of our favorite resources. So, and we're collecting those because, um, you know, you can't just go to Amazon to get many of these resources anymore. Yeah. They're being censored. And so we're trying to make sure that we have a listing of all the available resources and then taking people to the individual, typically to the individual's website like Joe Dallas's resources are listed on our website, and you can go to him to get the books that he's written. And so we don't change doesn't particularly offer any services like we're not doing any counseling under the the umbrella of changed. Instead, we're availing ourselves of the witness of the membership. That's excellent. So so critical. So important. Elizabeth, thank you for oh, your time. Awesome. We really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Now stay tuned because up next, Lauren and I talk about Naomi Osaka, mental health and doing hard things. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my other favorite podcasts. It's called Heritage Explains. Hosted by our friends Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, they break down big policy debates that you hear about on the news at a 101 level. Using news clips and music, they tell a story, but they also bring on heritage experts to explain complex issues. Go ahead and pull out your phone if you're not driving and subscribe to Heritage Explains so you can be in the know on the big issues like tech censorship, China's emissions problem, and the rise of anti-Semitism. All right, welcome back to the show. So this week, tennis star Naomi Osaka has really been in the news. She is the current number two female tennis player in the world. She won international fame in 2018 when she won her first Women's Tennis Association title at the Indian Wells Open. She's only 23 and she's won seven titles, including one's probably the biggest tennis match, right? The the U.S. Open. So what happened is Osaka announced at the end of May that she was going to drop out of the French open for her mental health reasons. She said that the required press conferences were just too much for her. So she wrote on Instagram, the truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018, and I have had a really hard time coping with that. And she added that she experiences huge waves of anxiety before I speak to the world's media. Lauren, the world is really weighing in on this decision because mental health is a big issue right now and increasingly people are talking about it. I know that we have some different thoughts on this, uh, but I was curious to know, like, what was your reaction when you first heard that someone as talented as Osaka was stepping back from tennis, at least for now, for mental health reasons? 
Well, I mean, it is a hard situation. It's really unfortunate that she's struggling with these issues and you never know what's going on in somebody's head. But you're paid to do a job, Virginia, and you can't expect for the world to kind of cater to your every need. And she is not someone who, if she misses this tournament, she is going to go hungry. She is going to maybe she'll she she won't be able to buy the third house, fourth house, <laughs> but she will be fine. And and I think there is a level of personal responsibility that you need to take when you are struggling with something. And, and it, it is hard and, it, you know, it's not fair. But that's, I think, the greater point And what I really wanted to talk to, about today is that the world is not fair and you can't expect everything to go your way and you can't get upset when things go your way. You just kind of to use the, the Cheryl Sandberg term, you know, you got to lean into these situations. Yeah, no, and I, I think uh, like there's a level where I, I totally agree with you, Lauren, where uh, you're right. Like life is made up of doing a lot of hard things. And sometimes all we you know have to do is like take a step back, take a deep breath and like remind ourselves like, oh, OK, I can do this. Uh, but I think like to the first point you made, like we like we have no idea what was going on in Osaka's heart and mind. So I think on that perspective, I'm like, OK, like. If she was really struggling, good for her for being like willing to take a step back and be like, I'm actually not okay. Um, and I think even culturally, like, you know, she she's Japanese. Um, that culture traditionally, like it, it's pretty high pressure. It's pretty intense. They have pretty high suicide rates. Um, so I, I think even, uh, you know, for people that, that she knows, for her friends, for her family, that may have been a really big deal and a really hard thing to do to pull back and be like, actually, I can't perform. I don't have the ability to both take care of myself and perform. Um, so I, I applaud her for taking a step back. Um, and I, I do think social media, I feel like, plays a really interesting role in this conversation. But I think the bigger problem is that wasn't her original statement. Her original statement was that she just didn't want to do press. Mm. And she just wanted to, she was like, oh, they get in my head. I, I, I just want to be able to play tennis. But the problem is that, Virginia, you and I, I mean, I'm not a tennis fan. I'm, I'm a college football fan. <laughs> but the press represents the people and the questions. And that's how you get to know pe- people. And that's how people get involved, invested in tennis players. And that's, I mean, when you think about it, that's how the tennis organizations make the money is, is through people watching and the advertisers. And so you can't hit your full commitment playing in the tournament. And so she did ultimately drop out. And I think you can say, OK, she finally, she took personal responsibility for her actions. But it was at first that she just wanted to play and not do the media. And she's now acting like she's the victim because the you know, this tennis tournament wouldn't cater to her, her mental health needs when I, I'm sorry, like you have to fulfill your obligations. Yeah. Well, and I I think, uh, you know, I think that's true. Like the media in a way, it's our window into these people's worlds. It's our window into actually, uh, you know, understanding what goes into something like preparing for a tennis match or so it it is that connection. Uh, I will say, I think the media has changed so much in the past 10 years, whereas, uh, you know, for athletes uh, 10 years ago, they would do a press conference and that was kind of it. Now, if someone says something dumb during a press conference, they're going to be trending on Twitter and everyone's going to have an opinion. So I, I think the stakes have been raised, which for someone who's only 23, like that, I, I would say that's a lot. Million dollars last yeah, but money doesn't and necessarily help your mental health condition. I would, I would say 10 years ago, tennis players weren't making $50 million. I just don't know if the money like really bears weight on how how you're doing like mentally though. Yeah, but but 
that's the whole point of these tournaments. You know, if like you just want to play tennis and be happy, like just play tennis and be happy. You don't have to be <laughs> you don't have to a compete. professional tennis player. Go get go get a job and have tennis as a hobby. Yeah. No, she, she she chose this life and to live this life. And you know, I, I think you're right. There are, I'm sure, pressures from her parents and her family and her country, but our society is missing some sort of mental fortitude. And I talk a lot about this when I think it's going back to work. Like hmm. everybody's like, oh, it's so great. I have more time with my commute and, you know, I, I can be more relaxed at home and I can get my laundry done in the middle of the day, which is all good reasons. There's nothing negative about that. But there is something about waking up early and sitting in traffic and, and going to work and sitting at your desk and, and doing those hard things and having that hard – that that routine that, yeah, sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's not great. And I'm not saying that there's mothers and, and people who have um, special, maybe they're immunocom- yeah. Yeah, immunocompromised. And uh, yeah, employers should be flexible every once in a while. But I think our generation is is really kind of losing the sense of like things that are hard are good for me. And the more that I lean in and I challenge myself and, and I always – Always, always think about this is when you lift weights, you know, that 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 pain that you're feeling is your muscles literally tearing. And so you're weaker right after you lift those weights, but then they grow back together and they grow stronger. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like our generation and not just millennials it's and not just Gen Z. It's I think um, the American society as a whole is, is missing this like things are hard. They they stink. They suck like no. Nobody likes it, but you have to just look at it and, and lean in and, and know that you're going to come back on the outside stronger, yeah. other side stronger. No, and I like I, I definitely hear you with that because I think there is a lot of joy in that sense of accomplishment when it's like, man, like I did something that was so challenging and I overcame that. Like You don't get that like adrenaline rush of like, whoa, that yeah. was awesome until you step out and you do those hard things. So. I, I'm, I'm with you there. I, I think, though, in, in some ways, uh, you know, doing hard things can also look like being like, hey, I'm actually not OK. I'm going to take a step back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, uh, you know, in some ways we can, you know, we can remove Osaka from this decision. And, you know, it, it's uh, in part almost uh, two different discussions of, OK, there's, you know, there's a mental health issue. And then there's also just like, don't be lazy, step up um, and both can be true, but you kind of have to weigh like, okay, in this situation, where, where do I need to lean in? What needs to be taken care of? What needs to be prioritized first um, in order to you know, succeed, have the best outcome in the situation whatnot? But the problem is that she's playing the victim, that it's not, I'm going to do this for myself. This is going to be great. This, my mental health is just as important as winning this tournament. It's, oh no, I really wish I could play tennis and not have to do this. And, you know, the media is so mean and the tournament's so mean. Like, you have to own your actions. And you're right, Virginia, there is a, there's a season for everything and there's a season to step back. But you have to also look at that as a challenge to push through. And she's not. She wants she wants everything her way. And and I think that is the problem within it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess I can't speak to that because um, I, I haven't talked to her. I don't know exactly, you know, what her whole mental process is, what she's thinking. Um, I will say she's only 23. Like, she's a baby. <laughs> and it's a lot of pressure uh, for, you know, a young person to be, you know, have, have such a huge platform on the world stage. And, you know, who knows if she was uh, aware of what exactly was she was getting into when she, quote unquote, became, you know, the best one of the one of the best in the world um but age is not she made 50 million dollars 50 million dollars and i know your money doesn't buy happiness but that's 
it's attributed to to the value that she's creating for the the tennis organizations, right? So when you're making that much money, you have that much responsibility, you you take that on yourself. She's made these decisions. She is an adult within our society. And so, yeah, when I was 23 and if I had $50 million, I'd probably do stupid things. But (laughs) that that is the society that we're living in. And I I, I think by speaking up and then speaking against this, like – I think it's it's good to counter this because I don't think this narrative like, yes, if she had again had come out and said, this is my mental health struggle. I'm gracious for the the French Open to let me take a step back. It would be totally different than. Oh, it's not it's not fair that I I I can't just play tennis and not do these press things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can agree to disagree a little bit, <laughs> but no, no, no. I, I agree. It, it's never good to play the victim because uh, we're not victims. We yeah. always have choices. She made a choice. She made a choice to step back. So, I mean, I hope she comes back. She's an awesome player. Love to see her continue to play. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I do feel like this has sparked a good and necessary conversation increasingly in society about mental health and like, okay, what are the pressures that are on young people? Um, and while I think there is an obligation for athletes to talk to the press, like, okay, maybe we, we look at, you know, what can change there? What can be different? If you have an opinion on this topic, tweet at us. Let us know. Hashtag problematic women. <laughs> just, pl- just tell me that I'm right. <laughs> okay, Lauren. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... Mother and daughter Cynthia and Margaret O'Neill Montalone. Cynthia and her daughter Margaret are both track athletes, and they both have competed against biological men. Cynthia is a World Masters athletic track athlete. Her favorite... Race is the 400 meter, which is one full lap around the track. And uh, I mean, it's hard enough to sprint 100 meters, 400 meters. Like it's it is insane. It's a brutal race. It's not like a dis. Yeah, I, uh, because it's technically yeah. a sprint. Like you're supposed to sprint a 400 meter and it's like the longest that's a quarter, sprint of that's your life. A qu- it's literally a quarter mile. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. So in 2018, she qualified to compete on Team USA at the World Masters Athletic Championships There, she competed against a biological male and beat him by a sheer tenth of a second. She said that, quote, just because I won doesn't mean that this is not an issue. And she knows it's an issue because now her daughter has competed against a biological male and placed second behind the transgender athlete. Only a year and a half after Cynthia faced off against a biological male, her daughter Margaret competed against a transgender student at her first high school track race of the season. The transgender student beat her and all the girls by a considerable distance in that same 400-meter race. Our friend Kelsey Bowler produced a documentary for the Independent Women's Forum telling Cynthia and Margaret's story. We will link to the full video in the show notes, but here's just a a little teaser. A lot of critics or a lot of people will say, this doesn't happen. This is a rare occasion. This is not really an issue. But what I'm here to say is that It is an issue. It's happening all the time. 
It's happening to myself, a mom. It's happening to my daughter, a high school athlete. This is not just something that is happening very rarely. I am there as a coach and as a mother. I am witnessing the psychological trauma to athletes like this girl who then told me she didn't even want to run track for the rest of the season. What was the point, she said. I trained so hard for my event, and I have no chance of winning the conference championship. I feel so sorry for every girl that has gone through this, and I know so many people are, and I know what it feels like because I've had to go through this experience as well. Man, watching that video, I personally get like so inspired and fired up. We've said it before in this show. These women are so bold to be speaking out. This is not easy. Uh, you know, the media, the far left, they really attack these women for being bold enough to say, no, this isn't right for biological men to be allowed to compete in women's sports. Yeah. And we we talk about it all the time. You know, it's it's just it's so frustrating because these women train so hard and they just all they want to do is be able to have a fair competition and and they can't and it to see this happen to see this happen to a mother and a daughter and then somewhere as beautiful as hawaii really really grateful for the folks over at iwf and kelsey for telling this story and hopefully we can get kelsey and some of her friends on the show soon to talk about it that would be great all right well be sure to check out the full story at the daily signal we will leave the link in the show notes and with that that's going to be it for this week's edition of problematic women join us next thursday morning for a brand new edition in the meantime please subscribe and share conservatives need your support in the podcast world and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast it really does make a difference don't forget sunday is father's day call your dad and it's also the first day of summer so we hope you have some fun celebrating over the weekend we will see you all back here next thursday problematic women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the heritage foundation it is a product of the daily signal produced by lauren evans and virginia allen special thanks to our editor-in-chief katrina trinko we produce problematic women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host brie payton